Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to a, another great episode of UAP Studies Podcast. James, uh, we have uh, James Clarkson today. Uh, he's joining us actually from just uh, right across the border from me. He's in Washington State. Uh, he's been investigating UFOs for over 30 years. He was a, a former police investigator, police officer. This guy knows what he's doing when it comes down to investigating. And he wrote two amazing books, which we are going to ask him about today. Uh, and I was saying to uh, the gentleman here before uh, we started that it's important that we revisit these cases because it's relevant to what's happening today. The crash retrievals, uh, the whistleblowers coming forward, um, you know, uh, this June Crane, I don't know much about, but James is like an expert on it, uh, this subject, and uh, he's investigated this, as well as the Westport UFO, which took place. James, I'm not familiar with Grace Harbor. That's in Washington State. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. It's, uh, 50 miles west of Olympia on the coast is Grays Harbor. And of course, everything in Washington state, you're either on one side of Interstate 5 or you're on the other. And right. so it's west, west of the state capital, Olympia. And there's a lot of activity in Washington state and BC. Obviously, the borders don't apply to these buggers. They don't see borders. They don't understand the concept, most likely. But our area, Pacific Nor Northwest, is is very much active. Um, and, and James, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question later that is revolved, or involves my investigations, and I need your input, but we'll let the audience in on it as well. Dr. Emmett Brown joins <laughs> us today. How's it going, Michael? It's going really well. Yeah. How are you guys? It's cold. It's cold. Yeah, and it, yeah James. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's, I, co it's cold here too. I actually had to put on long sleeve shirt out yeah. here in in Charleston to to keep warm. <laughs> I came downstairs in my office this morning and I could see my breath and my cup of coffee just steaming. I turned on the computer and you could almost see the the heat waves coming. Like it was that cold. I forgot to close a window yesterday. Um, bad on me. I smoked and I opened a window and I left it open. <laughs> my mistake because I paid for it this morning. Uh, I'm sure you did. Yeah, it's it's not that bad here i mean i think we're like 60 degrees outside right but um i as, as much sympathy as i can muster for you uh, we're North 26 Western, i have it 26 yeah it's, it's significantly different yeah it's uh it's substantially cold you can put your stuff outside you don't need freezer anymore you can just put your pops outside and oh, that's anything nice. you want frozen is pretty cool that's so, true yeah, exactly. Um, but we're off to a good start for uh, 2024. Uh, we have lots of great guests and interviews uh, that are coming up, which we're excited about. Who knows what the community and the UFO news at large will receive in 2024. I'm Boy, hoping... isn't that the truth? Oh, man, I'm so frustrated. I could see the frustration on Tim Burchett's face and his team. Just like, we need answers. Like, we call the right people in. They're like, not my department, so they don't mm. say anything. It's like, oh, well, they've called. They've called it the Empire Strikes Back, and that, that's cl clearly what happened. Well, and of course, yeah. When when you've been through several of these cycles, we're always on the edge of disclosure. Oh, disclosure is going to be tomorrow. Oh, we finally made a breakthrough, and it's always two steps forward and one step back. And Constantly, yeah, I, yeah. It's I, a sort of I'm ever-seeding horizon. Kind of used yeah. to it. I, I thought we were close. Well, the thing is, it's these guys, uh, this these organization or clandestine groups that don't answer to Congress. They haven't changed. They have to change their tactics based on what's going on now, but they haven't changed. They don't want this out. Um, even uh, Michael and I were talking to Stephen Bassett. His idea of what disclosure will be is a lot different than what we theorize it's going to be. Uh, it's going to bring on a whole new slew of issues right uh we call it I, I called it or deemed the the trojan horse or like oh at first you're all amazed by it but then you're like how long have you had that and then it comes exactly. with a bunch of baggage how many crimes have you been involved with keeping this quiet for this long and there are crimes major crimes against humanity based on this and uh that's why they don't want to come out right they're trying to say, oh, the people that did that, they all died off. There's no accountability. Well, no, because it passes on. And as it passes on, you guys keep building up to it. You keep finding it more and more, which means your secret gets deeper and deeper. Uh, like I said, it's insulting to all of us. We're all grown men. We've all lived long enough to be told the truth about what reality is. Unfortunately, they deem that we are not important enough to know that. And that includes all the listeners out there. Uh, we're being played for, for fools when... 
people like yourself, James, have been investigated for 30 plus years, know for a fact, hands down, you bet your whole house on it, uh, that they are here and they're here constantly. So let's get right into it. <clears throat> um, James, I, I would like you to um, just tell us about your background, um, how you got involved in ufology, because the thing is when you were doing this, uh, people mocked you, whether it was your coworkers or people around you. This is not a normal investigation um, pattern for a police officer. I think Chuck Zakowski had a similar experience than you. He ended up having to leave the force because they didn't like him investigating cattle mutilations. But I'd like to hear it from you. Like, what was your life like um, coming to this point and coming to uh, uh, writing these books? Well, to make it brief, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. As a young teenager, there was that weekend when my parents left me alone to take care of the house and whatnot. I heard a particular radio broadcast from KGO Radio San Francisco. They were interviewing an author named John G. Fuller. John, this is back in the mid-60s. He had just come out with his then new book, called Incident at Exeter, referring to a very vivid series of UFO sightings in Exeter, New Hampshire. And I was spellbound. It was the right thing at the right time. And it was like some part of me, just it just all clicked in. I had been interested in science fiction, spaceships. I was a precocious kid. I started reading at an extremely young age. And once I got on board with science fiction and whatnot, there was no looking back. The uh, thing that intrigued me the most, and it's, I guess, to describe myself, I'm not sure exactly how all this arose, but there have been two huge drives in my life. One is to try to understand the UFO mystery. And the other one was my professional drive to be in law enforcement. I wanted from an early age to be a commissioned police officer. I managed to do both over the course of my career, but like most people's lives, it didn't go exactly as I planned it. I ended up eventually, I ended up protesting the war back in Vietnam, this turbulent 60s. And then I ended up turning against the whole culture that I had been involved in. And I sort of stepped off the deep end, cut my hair, moved home. And not long after I enlisted in the army and I wanted to go, I, I think it was sort of like joining the foreign legion. I wanted something completely different and kind of push the big reset button. I was accepted into the military police corps after just a few months, I think because I was an avid reader and very uh, vocal when I needed to be, I was chosen to be a military police investigator. Most of the time that I served in the Army, I went to work wearing a sport coat, shirt and a tie and slacks, and I had a shoulder holster, uh, snub nose 38 and handcuffs. And when you run around a military base like that, and people know that you have authority, it didn't matter that I was only a spec four. I was a specialist fourth. That nobody wants to question you about your rank. So everybody serves you. That's I learned nice. an awful lot from my time in the army. I learned investigative skills that I have used to this day. And I, you know, we could do a whole separate program or a, a big statement within this one about some basic investigative principles. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, I bet you learned that. a lot yeah. that you could apply directly to investigating exactly. UAP. I came, I came out of that, the Army. I was honorably discharged in 1977. I had an, an Army Commendation Medal, which is a peacetime award. They give it to about one in every thousand soldiers for the quality of my investigative work. I became a Thurston County, Washington Reserve Deputy Sheriff, then a correctional officer, and I would have had a career there, except they weren't hiring and I was young 
and ambitious and full of fire. And I didn't want to be tied down anymore. So I started taking tests. I got hired by the city of Aberdeen out on the Washington coast, 50 miles west of Olympia, where Thurston County is. I became a police officer on May 20th of 1979. When you're a young rookie policeman, you don't see much daylight. Yeah. <laughs> you don't read the newspaper either. Had I looked at the newspaper on November 25th, 1979, I would have seen a headline that would have startled me. It said UFO crash in Elk River, question mark, big letters. And it was the old style. Actually, this is another good clue for everybody. Local news reporting of UFO events is way better than network reporting. The local reporters will get the real story. They will go out and talk to people and gather facts that are left behind when it becomes a 20-second soundbite on the evening news. But moving on from that, years went by, like many other people, sadly, I got married, had a divorce. I have three wonderful children that I'm very proud of, all of them, now that they're adults. I got remarried very happily. I'm still married to my wonderful wife, Joanne. We been, we just celebrated our 26th anniversary. Oh, congratulations. congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> She was a children's librarian when I met her. She was in charge of getting all these programs. Well, needless to say, it didn't take too long for her to figure out that I was way into UFOs. In fact, that's another whole story where we to go there, but I won't go into all that. So we how did it start? How did your interest start in, in UFOs? Like, was it, it wasn't that uh, headline? It was that, that radio before. show long ago. It was like a seed that germinated. After that, I started, every time I saw a book, a news article, something on television about UFOs, I was gathering information. And I guess that what really bothered me the most, the first when I heard about the incident at Exeter, they told this Air Force veteran turned civilian policeman who took a witness out to a site where a UFO a 50-foot disc with scintillating red lights came down so low that he dropped to one knee, pushed the witness down onto the ground, and started to draw his revolver at the same moment that his backup officer was arriving behind him, and the second officer jumped out of his car and screamed, don't do it, and he didn't fire a shot, and the thing rose up and took off. Well, they claimed that those were the lights on some kind of aerial refueling exercise that was going on at 30,000 feet above it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm thinking, so cute. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking we have a policeman. He's an Air Force veteran, so he probably knows what an airplane looks like. We give him a gun, a badge. We test his health. We test his mental capability and then we put him out on the street and he, and we let him drive an emergency vehicle his eyesight is apparently so bad that he can't tell the difference between something flying overhead and a huge object that's about to come down and flatten him yeah and so I'm james thinking, what's james, wrong with this picture yeah why do they do that though i've always wanted to ask a police officer this because I, I asked rcmp once there was two gentlemen that was with they're both RCMP. And when I asked them about that, they started laughing, not laughing at, you know, you know, this is funny. You'll, you'll find this funny, but laughing at even the thought of being called out to one of these things. And statistically, maybe about 33%, 35% of cases involve police officers. And I can't wrap my head around why the police departments try to hush, hush. Like you mentioned, this guy doesn't, you know, he almost because your public credibility is extremely important, most okay. especially to the law enforcement administrators. And because, uh, you know, it's not like it happens all the time. If it happened all the time, right, there would have to be a definite strategy for dealing with it. 
But the police departments, law enforcement in general, they have too many other things that they have to do. And, and everything is pretty, you know, in the have to category, it's pretty nuts and bolts, cut and dried. You know what your responsibilities are. You know what needs to be done. The other thing is everything that you do or you come into contact with, you may be questioned on that in a court of law under oath. Okay. Part of being a professional witness is to maintain absolute integrity and credibility. That means that people have to believe you when you go up on the stand and you raise your right hand and they don't want to think of you as a the UFO nut. Right. The only time that anybody ever brought that up in court was when I was going through my divorce. Oh, the they used that against you. Oh, yeah. My wife's attorney brought that up. Oh, nice. Nice. Well, mm. it's all about cheap shots. You know, that's. And what was the strategy there? Like, what was his, uh, what, what was their angle? What was the argument? The angle was that that, that that made me, uh, you know, undependable and of questionable integrity, a poor character, etc. Even though there was no evidence to the contrary. Yeah. I was a, uh, by then I was a police sergeant. I was a patrol sergeant. I was in charge of the field training officers. And I supervised the fatal accident team. And eventually, in 1993, I became the detective sergeant and served a tour doing that, too. I'd say that those are fairly responsible positions. No doubt. And I had to be very careful what I said and what I did. And I think most law enforcement officers would agree with me that and a lot of them have good imaginations, and they are aware that there are other things going on in this world. But you've got to be so careful with your reputation. Well, it's the same well, within the saw... military as well, right? Because uh, in the military, they'll demote you uh, if exactly. you try to speak out. And it seems like whenever you're in a position of authority, whether a police officer or within the military, um, you're discouraged from telling people the truth of what you are witnessing. I mean, police officers are out every night. You mentioned if you're a new, a new guy, a rookie on the team, you'll most likely work night shifts. Yes. Um, so your chances are increasing quite a bit. Usually the activity is anywhere between 10 to three 30 in the morning is when the most activity usually takes place. So I've always been baffled by that because if I'm a police officer like yourself with absolute, like the best reputation, I say that I've seen this and all of a sudden everything else that I investigated is now under question because I experienced or witnessed something that is beyond what I can do as a police officer or can have knowledge of as a police officer. And I feel bad for you guys because most of you police officers go home, never tell a word, don't even report it to your coworkers. And like you, you know, mentioned like, you know, you had some coworkers make fun of you throughout your career and put stuff in your lockers or whatever. Uh, a lot of people experienced that, myself included. When I first got into UFOs, my office was laughing at me. They're like, oh, the UFO. But af after a while, though, uh, you got to be able, when, you, when you're in amongst law enforcement officers, you got to be able to, to take it. In other words, they, they need to be able to rib you and make fun of you. And you got to dish it out in return. And cops everywhere are pretty much the same. They will defend each other to the death as a group, but amongst themselves, they are the worst and most vicious gossips I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> because yeah. you, but think about it. You pay law enforcement officers to get the dirt on people. Yeah. They do it automatically. It becomes second nature. You're always seeing the dark side, seeing what's wrong. Right. And those those are some of, there was also the pitfalls of the job, because if you don't keep a good perspective, that can eat you. But on back to the subject of UFOs, we are under a fundamental uh, shroud that's existed for a long time. And there is a book called The Missing Times by Terry Hansen. He lived down here on Bainbridge Island. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago from a heart attack. He, he wrote one absolutely fabulous book called The Missing Times. 
I recommend it to anybody who okay. gets involved with UFOs because it is the history of how our government, the United States, and other governments in general have used all of the techniques of psychological warfare, propaganda, uh, opinion shaping, you name it. This has become even more of a science with the advent of social media. This has been going on since World War II, where it went into, and probably earlier, but to, in World War II, we started actually organizing this as a strategic move. And mm -hmm. early on, they did not know what to do with the UFO problem. And if you think about it, uh, are you aware of the fact that there was no United States Air Force during World War II? Yeah, it was part of the uh, part of the Army, right? Exactly, the Army Air, the Corps. Army Air Corps. 1947, they all came out. Exactly. Yeah. They passed the National Security Act, which created the Central Intelligence Agency, the United States Air Force, and reset our government under a centralized command structure so that it would be more modern and more efficient, hopefully. That is when we can when we can find the Secretary of Defense, which that's a recent news story that's a little embarrassing. But it was done for the right reasons. But think about being in charge of the Air Force. You're in your first year as a new arm of the Defense Department, and suddenly you are confronted with the UFO problem. And it gets it gets right in your face at Roswell. And now you know that there is something probably not from this world. It can fly rings around anything that you've got. And it evidences a technology that is completely foreign and completely beyond anything that we have. Are you going to talk much about that and admit that you can't do your basic mission, which is to protect the sky? You know, they're not going to admit that. So right off the bat, they're in a defensive secrecy-oriented posture, and it only gets worse as time goes on. And I will tell you that people in government tend to always take the easy way out. Hmm. And the easy way is to keep doing it the way you've always been doing it. That's why it's so hard to fundamentally change our perspective and how we approach the subject. It's like steering an ocean liner. You don't just turn the steering wheel and have it move. You, you have to plan your maneuvers. And even when you execute, it takes quite a while before, you know, the momentum can be shifted in another direction. And every little thing that we do, even down to the three of us talking today, and everybody who hears us, we're helping to change that direction. Um, James, yeah, I, I, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry, Mike. Uh, do you think, though, this sort of leads us into a cold war with the other countries that have this technology as well? Um, you know, let's face it, Russia, China, they have this, uh, but it creates sort of a cold war of who can weaponize this technology first and better because you could both, and I mentioned this, like the potato theory of let's say you have a potato, it's never been introduced to humanity. You give it to an Irishman, he'll make stew out of it. You give it to a Russian, he'll make um, uh, vodka out of it. You give it to a kid in New Zealand, he'll make a potato launcher out of it. So it's whatever we could think of uh, that we could use that technology. But do you think that creates a cold war situation? And is this impacting why we don't get disclosure is that it would admit that we have technology and now the other countries are going to be like, aha, right? This is, it, it clearly exists. Obviously, they don't want to admit it. But I mean, it's also ridiculous because we're, the posturing that goes on, because we know that they know. We know that they know that we know. And right. on and on and on. Like the friends it, Phoebe thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just one big lie. And, yeah. and yet I find people in general know. They understand that we are not alone and that there is some kind of important fundamental reality to the existence of non-human intelligence on the earth. I saw it. I went to the 75th anniversary of the Roswell event back in 2022 in July. I was, at, I was one of the speakers at the UFO museum. 
We had 12,000 people came through the front door of the museum wow. in three days. And I think Joanne and I talked to half of them. We talked from the time we got in the door until we left. All these people, young families from all over the United States, all over the world, who wanted to come to Roswell because they wanted they wanted to have reinforced what they already kind of believed that this is so, real. So I to to Jason's point about um you know what this means if if there are these sort of non-human technologies that are being you know, passed around the world or collected. I mean, I'm not sure that we have the ability to reverse engineer them or, or use them in, in practical ways. I mean, it might be like dropping an iPhone off 200 years ago and exactly perfect and not be able to do anything with it. Uh, but it, it might not. I don't, I don't know. I, I suspect that if it's, if it's significantly advanced um, that we, we would need lots of intermediary technologies in order to be able to use them. So, so the technological question to me is, is one thing that's important, but a lot of what you're focusing on are, are social issues and questions about like, um, where this puts us as a society when we kind of know, but kind of pretend we don't know a certain thing. Like, what do you want to see as a person who's been so interested in this for so long? Like, what do you want to see the next step be in the in the movement of what gets called disclosure or just like public interest on this? Where do you want it there to are, go? There are two people who I have tremendous respect for. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly. But one of them is Richard Dolan, and the other one is Ross Coulthard, who yeah. I had the good fortune to become acquainted with about a year and a half ago when he made an in, in email inquiry of me out of the blue, wanting to know where he could get a copy of the June Crane book because he was down in Australia. Well, we ended up swapping books electronically. Oh, and cool. although the man is one of the busiest people, I think, anywhere, he always makes it a point to respond to my emails. And I, I don't bother him with a lot. Only if I think it's something really special or really important, I bring it to his attention. He's a very, very courteous person, but he's also an absolutely impeccable investigative journalist. Yeah. And I listen to him. And one of the words that he started talking about, and I I heard something similar echoed by Richard Dolan. What I really want to see happen is not disclosure. I want confirmation. And it goes like this. We all grew up, we have lived our entire lives under the threat of thermonuclear destruction. We know that if there was ever a full-scale thermonuclear exchange between the major powers of the earth, civilization would cease to exist. That's just a fact. Most of us would die. Yeah. I can't, but let me just finish this one sure. out. They, yeah. they cannot, at the same time, they are not going to release details about how to build a nuclear bomb in your kitchen. I don't want to know that. I don't want anybody else to know that. But I want the fact that nuclear technology exists, the fact that we live under that threat, existential threat, that should be common knowledge and part of the education that everybody receives if you're going to be a member of civilization. I think that the presence of non-human intelligence on the earth is equally and potentially far more important because it might help save us in, in the long run. And I want them to come out and confirm that this is real. Do I want the details of every single thing that they're trying to retro-engineer and weaponize? No, I don't need that. I just need somebody in political authority to say, Roswell really happened. It wasn't a weather balloon. It was a crashed spacecraft from somewhere, and we don't know who sent it here or why. And we can't control this. We don't know the origin of it. In other words, some honesty. That's what we're not getting. I think there's a Billy Joel about Billy Joel song about all I need is some honesty. 
No, that, that's what we're lacking. I want them to confirm that this is real. That's where we start. Disclosure, no. I, they're not going to show us everything they've got hidden away in a warehouse. A couple of cool pictures or some video would be nice. You know, they don't have to show me every detail. You know what the thing is, too, I think about this, James, is that there's what they're doing with the reverse engineering, but there's what they're doing, and I'm not meaning humans, I'm meaning the non-human entities, what they're doing with the general population. Because you could have, it's it's like the Me Too movement, right? Everybody in Hollywood knew what Weinstein or whatever his name is, uh, was up to, Harvey Weinstein or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, everybody knew it. Everybody kept their mouth shut because they knew that yeah. they wouldn't get a job anymore, that he would ruin their careers. And so everybody kept quiet. So the crime kept propelling and it gets worse and worse because these people, if they get away with murder, they get away with murder. They keep doing it. This is the problem is that we don't live in an age of accountability. And these groups, yeah. uh, you know, this is what Tim Burchett and the Congress are doing. They're saying, you need to be held accountable. You need to be accountable to us. Congress is supposed to have complete oversight over what they're doing. There's billions of dollars every year that just magically disappear and no receipts and they don't answer to Congress. Like too bad. You figure it yeah. out. The arrogance of it, like that this is the part that I get angry. Now they're just blatant about it. When Tim asked a guy at the Air Force, um, you know, well, we're here for the the UFOs, the crash craft. And the guy looked at him and said, You're not gonna get it with a smile on his face. Like they're blatantly telling their boss, you don't have access to this. Yeah. This is how bad it is. And to tell the truth, I don't know what's worse, what the non-humans are doing or what we are doing to ourselves after somebody has an experience. Because let's face it, the track record has been pretty bad for homo sapiens. Um, and, and that's the part that, that really irks me. But this goes back a long time. And uh, let's get into June Crane here because, you know, just reading the little bit that I could about it, I'm like, holy crap. Like she was like the first whistleblower, if not, you know, amongst the first anyways, uh, to come forward. So can you tell us how this story dropped on your lap, how you got involved and what is her story? Yeah. Who's June Crane? Tell me about that. Okay. The way I came at this was that my wife, being the librarian, was always looking for speakers to do evening programs and programs that involved teenagers and adults were especially desirable. And it's a matter of pride amongst librarians to have a program in your library that gets a lot of people in there. You know, people checking out books, looking at things, etc. That's good for the library. So my wife knew my then, well, we weren't married then, but she knew that I was interested in UFOs and she started getting me lecture gigs. And in the beginning, it was very crude. And as time went on, technology improved and I became more adept at presenting. I polished the program, but along the way, there's a city right near Aberdeen, Washington, where I had my police career called Ocean Shores. It was originally going to be this huge, they were going to get gambling out there. And there were all these movie stars. I think Pat Boone was involved. All these heavyweights were going to invest and make all this money. Well, it did become a vacation spot, but it was never successful the way they wanted. But they had a very nice little library there. And I got scheduled one evening to do a UFO program back in 1993. So, I go there and there's like 40 people. And when it's all over with, this very determined looking elderly lady gets up, walks down the aisle, looks me in the eye and says, I know you're right. The government knows all about UFOs and they're keeping it a secret. And I said, how do you know? And she says, I worked there. She's very matter of fact, no hesitation, just blunt. Yeah. And I said, well, will you tell me more? And she said, no, I'm afraid they'll come and arrest me. And I think she was half afraid somehow that I would, because I didn't keep it a secret. I mean, what I was doing was not endorsed by the police department, but it adds to my credibility to say that I'm using the same techniques with my UFOs 
that I do with crimes. It's really not that complicated. It's You can investigate anything once you get your mind in an investigative set. So I gave her my business card. I did some checking around. This was the elderly lady that everybody was afraid of out there. <laughs> she led the charity drive and basically shook down all these rich people to get them to contribute something to rebuild the library and make it into a nice facility for people. Uh, she had gone toe to toe with one of the families out there over some community issue. And this family was connected with the mob, but wow. she wasn't intimidated. And it turns out my that Joanne had heard of her and and thought she was like the last person anybody would have ever thought of who would have been involved in UFOs or had anything to say. Well, it took four years for her to open up to me. Scroll forward to 1997. We start off with the Phoenix Lights. That, I think, was at March 13, 1997. And mm. that kind of sets the world on fire. The secret keepers are very disturbed by that one. Uh, they were flares, right? Yeah. Yeah, they were flares, right. That was hard to contain. Then... We have the 50th anniversary of Roswell is coming up in July. So that's going to be a PR problem. So the Air Force conveniently comes out with a brand new book, Roswell Case Closed. And hmm. it was just a weather balloon. And oh, by the way, we had these mannequins that looked like GIs. And we dropped a few of them from parachutes. And somebody must have seen one lying out in the desert and said, oh, my God, it's an alien because it's green, OD green. And they didn't bother to notice the little plaque on the side that says, please return for a cash reward. Um, so that was the explanation for the aliens. And you might as well all go home and you can cancel Roswell. Well, nobody paid much attention to that, except it got all over CNN. It was all over the national news when the Air Force published this book. I get a phone call out of the blue. It's June. She says, it's a damn lie. I said, well, how <laughs> are you, June? And we go from there. It turns out that when she was a young woman, she grew up in Dayton, Ohio. And as she put it, the only way to get a good job in Dayton, Ohio, was to work for the government. She went to work at Wright Field. She went to work at Wright Field when that's all it was. Before it was Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, yeah. It, it became Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. She worked there before the Air Force even existed. And I know this because eventually she gave me all of her personal papers, and I independently confirmed this by getting a copy of her personnel file from the National Records Center in St. Louis, which... They turned me down on my request five times before oh, I actually got her file. They kept saying, oh, that must have gone out in the fire, and we had a really bad fire. And it's and finally, one day with no warning, I got a big envelope with all these copies in it, and it was her whole file. And I had half of those documents anyway, because she gave me the originals that she had kept. She worked in top secret laboratories at Wright-Patterson. She was there amongst all these scientists and engineers. And in order to work with those people, this is back in the day, there are no computers. There's no internet. There's nothing like that. Everything is on paper. Everything is in a folder. Everybody has a security clearance. In order to have access, you have to have a need to know and you have to have the right clearance. Her job was to be in charge of a dozen safes. Hmm. And she would check documents in and out for these scientists and engineers. And the place was so strict that at night, you got to bear in mind, older technology, they used manual typewriters, which meant there was a little typewriter ribbon that had ink on it. And at night when they went home, every piece of paper had to be secured in a safe or locked in a desk. 
and the typewriter ribbon from each machine had to be lifted out and put in the safe as well. Oh, wow. This is a very strict security environment. She worked on something, just one example, Project Caucasian. When I first heard about Project Caucasian, nobody knew what it was. I talked to military historians. Nobody had any idea then. It wasn't until like four years later when they declassified Project Caucasian. And I know why it was so hot. It was the code name for the project to construct a parachute harness for a hydrogen bomb to drop mm. out of the back of a B-26 bomber. Needless to say, that's a little bit classified. Sure. So she knew all about all of this classified work, but amongst the people that were there, they talked about UFOs. It was common knowledge. There were a group of scientists and engineers that would get sent down in the summer to do research in the desert in New Mexico, places like that. And then they would come back and finish up whatever they were doing. Part of them came back to Wright Patterson. And they talked about how they felt like they were under surveillance by UFOs while they were working there. There mm -hmm. were so many UFOs. She even made a joke about it. She said they came back and said the UFOs were as thick as fleas. And they would report them. And if they reported a UFO, they got debriefed right. in a room. And they were, were made to repeat the story over and over again until they were fed up with it. Until they said, oh, no, I must not have really saw seen anything. Well, needless to say, after you've been through that process a couple times or your friends tell you about what they went through, you're not going to report it. Excuse me. So sure. she had many, many details. And in 1997, after she called me that time, I, I've, the first thing I thought it was, this is a golden opportunity. This lady is special. And turned out she was. And I said, well, when can I come to your house? And I started visiting her. And eventually uh, I got her on tape a couple of times. And she gave me all of her personal papers. I think the only thing that she told me that wasn't true was she told me that her cancer was in remission because she died the next year in 1998. Oh, wow. Okay. And I'm very lucky that I got what I got, although I have about a thousand million questions in retrospect that I wished I would have asked her when I had the I chance. I bet. But it was very straight. Everything with her was very straightforward. So I eventually, with the help of my wife, I put together a book because the last time I talked to June when she was dying on hospice over in Hoquiam, Washington, I said, June, what do you want me to do? And she said, tell my story, Jim, tell my story. So the title of the book is Tell My Story. June Crane, the Air Force, and UFOs. And I can tell you that I've passed her story on. Uh, I don't even know how many places now. I've sent books to India. I've sent them to Europe. The book has been now translated into French. Uh, you're right. I think yeah. she was one of the fundamental whistleblowers. She's not well known. She told me that by the time she left Wright-Patterson in 1953, it was common knowledge that there had been three UFO crash retrieval events, one of which was Roswell. We believe that the other one was Kingman, Arizona. The third one she was never sure of. She heard a rumor that there were alien bodies locked in a place that she had no access to called the Aero Med Lab, which still exists to this day. Aero Med Lab. Okay. A-E-R-O-M-E-D-L-A-B. Mm. There were a lot of, June passed away and I had all of these, you know, I had, you got to bear in mind, I've got a family, I'm newly married, I'm a full-time police sergeant, and I've got all of June's materials and I wasn't really sure what to do with them. 
one night I was listening to Art Bell. Art Bell, God bless him. The, the legacy that he left for all of us UFO researchers Huge. cannot be measured. And I heard these two men on there talking about the majestic documents. I was in a patrol car at the time. It was a slow night. In fact, it was snowing then. And I was parked down by the river and there was nothing moving. So I turned my AM radio on and got Art Bell. And Bob Wood and Ryan Wood were talking about the majestic documents. And I was really interested. I thought, well, what the heck is this? And they gave an 800 number where you could get them. So I, I called the number the next day and I said, you know, I'd really like to get those documents and exchange information and whatnot. And I said, oh, by the way, I'm a police sergeant and I have uh, audio tapes and documents from a woman who worked at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, who talked to me about uh, crash UFOs and all of that. About three days later, I get another phone call. It's a travel agent. They want to fly me down to Newport Beach, California. There was a guy named Joe Firmage. Joe Firmage in the mid-80s made uh, like $40 million on the dot-com boom. And he managed to take some of that with him before the bottom fell out of it. So he is a rich man. He put up $1 million to get to the bottom of the UFO question. And that's what was funding this thing that I ended up attending. So I mentioned to them, that I said, well, I usually don't go anywhere without my wife. And they said, what does she do? And I said, well, she has two master's degrees uh, in English and library science. And they said, good, we'll bring her as a researcher. So both of us flew down to this luxury resort. And I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know any of these people. I mean, what am I getting into? I walk into this conference room, and here are all the people that I've heard on the radio, on television, and I have their books. So uh, Stan Friedman couldn't make it. Uh, Linda Moulton Howe hmm. was there. Paul Davids, uh, who I ended up becoming friends with, who produced the original Roswell uh, video for HBO, which is a brilliant recreation, by the way, and several other people. There was also, I can say this guy's name now because he's he's come out, as it were, and gone public, is Dr. Hal Putoff was there. Mm -hmm. And nice. at the time, he said, I'll help you with the June research, uh, but I won't, uh, you can't reveal my name. And he sent me this incredible internal Air Force magazine because I kept, June kept saying that uh, Tanaki wrote the Bible on parachutes. A lot of times June worked in this advanced paras parachute laboratory where they did all kinds of other weird things. Like I told you, they made a harness for an H-bomb. Well, she kept saying Tanaki wrote the Bible on parachutes and I couldn't find Tanaki. So they, Hal Putoff sends me this magazine and it's got a, highly technical article by Hal, by uh, Kanaki, Walter Kanaki in a technical unit in the military about how you design parachutes to withstand the stress of dropping like combat vehicles and everything else from a high altitude onto a battlefield and not having them destroy themselves. And it's right in, in the table of contents it's right next to an article by Dr. Lincoln La Paz. Okay. If anybody, if you look up his name, if anybody got tasked by the Air Force to write up the main accident report on the Roswell crash, it was Lincoln La Paz. He had already been sent officially to all of the military bases in the Southwest to investigate the mysterious green fireballs. So, you know, seeing these two names in close proximity is all these things about June ended up adding up. So what I did as an investigator is I took every detail that she had and I tried to verify it if I could. At the same time, though, I admit, I became June's friend. 
The reason is this was during a time when I hadn't quite gotten together with Joanne and we kept bouncing off of each other to make a long story short. And we, I finally got sensible and we've been happy ever since, but I had a lot of time and June was a lonely lady. And I think she kind of knew she was coming to the end of her life. And so she sent me a letter signed by her attorney and her granting me the rights to her life story in return for, it says in there, in return for the friendship that I gave her when she needed it most. And I've, nice. I've always been touched by that. And That's I, very nice. I, I, you know, it means a lot to me that I can tell her story. It's kind of like we also, Joy, I don't have her whole story, but I actually, I did hear the best parts of it. Joanne and I in 2017 were in Roswell once again, and we met Frankie Rowe. Mm -hmm. And it turned out when we talked to her, she would only be alive for another three weeks. She passed on in her early 80s. And when she was a 12-year-old girl, she went to see her father in Roswell. And there was a New Mexico highway patrolman and a couple of firefighters and her dad, and they were passing around this weird piece of metal, which, by the way, June got to hold at one point. Nice. It was the memory metal. The one that you could crumble up and it goes yes. back to, yeah, yeah. The gotcha. holy grail of ufology. Everybody yeah. <laughs> wants the memory metal. You, It weighs nothing. You wad it up into a ball. It springs back like water to its original shape. And you can't done it, dent it, you can't cut it, you can't poke a hole in it. And nobody, you know, nobody can figure out exactly why this was made or what it did. Supposedly, it was part of the wreckage. But so you know, all these details with June kept adding up. And so she kind of dovetails nicely into all of these other witness accounts. So I have always said that I consider her to be one of the key corroborating witnesses. And I there's a distinction there. And you always look for corroborating witnesses, yeah. especially on a major incident. They don't so have... So all, these, go all these documents that you have of hers, are, uh, are those available to other researchers? Or yes. you... Yeah. The, the best ones are in the book. They're, they're in there, but obviously I've got them all digitized and I've certainly willing to share them with people there. A lot of them are personnel things. They're not, you know, stunning accounts of crashed UFOs and all that. Sure. That's the problem with the problem with June. If I had to say a negative is that she didn't have that. Right. She didn't bring me a piece of the memory metal. She didn't bring me an insider report of, you know, crashed UFOs and frozen bodies, but, she was a qualified witness. One of the, the way you qualify a witness is, the first thing you want to know is, could they have witnessed what they're reporting? Were they looking at it? Were they there? So I want to establish that. I want to qualify my witness. Are they capable of understanding and explaining whatever it is they claim to have witnessed? You know, and, and you look, you check the boxes. Was they, were they in the right place at the right time with the right security clearance to know what it is that they're reporting? And if you get yes, yes, and yes, you're probably good to go. You know what I'd love to do with you, James, is have you back on, but we do one specifically on investigating uh, tips and tactics and all that, but specifically to learn from you the the, the ins and outs of how to do a proper investigation, regardless of where you're located around the planet. One thing that you brought up is obviously she's worked with people that have worked in, in these programs. We were talking to Earl Gray not too long ago, and his mother in the 1950s would go in these underground bases that they had built, and um, technologies that were not human were kept down there. But, you know, Hitler created a bunch of tunnels everywhere during the second world war. And it really opened up the eyes to America of like, Oh wow, you could keep things hidden and secret. If you just dig underneath instead of living on the two dimensional plane, you do it 3d and you could actually go down. 
But the amount of scientists and let's say even clerks or people that serve food at these underground bases, all these people are kept quiet. And let's face it, there's got to be thousands of them at this point, at least 2,000 worldwide that know that these things are there. Even if they haven't seen the entities, they work in the facilities. This is why whistleblowers coming out is so huge because it's finally confirming Let's face it, like we mentioned, disclosure brings a bunch of issues. But then when you find out how many bases are hidden underground, how long they've been there, uh, you know, the secrets they kept, the people that have been affected by it, a.k.a. murdered, because let's face it, there's murders involved in this. Uh, life's wrecked, divorces, you name it. It's bad. But these people, these scientists have worked on these programs. Like Bob Lazar came out in 1989 and says, hey, they've been at this for a long time, which sort of corroborates with what June has been saying, that they've been at it for a long time. Uh, David Grush says that they picked up in 1939 a craft in Italy because the Vatican told the states. So the states showed up. 1945, two years before Roswell, there's another incident uh, that Jacques Vallée investigated. Now, people are on the fence on that one, uh, but it was- yeah, an I'm more, I'm more that we, that would be a whole other- it's a whole thing, but that's that's yeah. what's claimed. We don't know. Uh, you know, David Grush says there's nine, maybe 12 crafts in the possession of the United States. Some are not intact. Some are. Some fly, some don't. Interestingly, uh, because I work with a lot of abductees, I'm starting to see a notice of twins being taken. And it turns out that it might be that the government finally clued in that twins are how they fly these crafts, that a single person cannot do it. It takes a twin connection between twins to be able to fly these. So that might be another interesting thing to delve into in the future. But it's interesting, like, you know, these people come forward to somebody like yourself that is trusted, you know, you're, you believe these people. Um, and then you look into it to see if there's validity in there. What would you say, uh, a piece of advice, we'll have to end up the podcast soon because uh, it's nearing the hour mark, but what would you say as advice for anybody who wants to get into this and really deep into this, James? Like they, they want to do what you've done, like maybe end up writing a book, but they don't know where to start. Well, first off, you've got to be systematic. You should keep a, a journal of your activities and the people you meet. In terms of investigating, I'll just, I'll give you my number one, tenant for investigation. It's Bring really, it it's pretty simple. I was taught early on that if you're a good investigator, you're always talking to yourself. Mm. It sounds a little bit crazy, but you are. And there is a mysterious person that you're always talking to. And it's the reasonable man or the reasonable woman. And what I am saying to myself in every situation what would a reasonable man conclude if he was confronted with the evidence that is before me right now? Now, see, that opens the door, though. I may get more evidence. I may get evidence five minutes from now that makes all of this seem unimportant. Or I may get evidence uh, tomorrow that's going to lock this into a much bigger pattern. And I'm going to go, wow, that's really solid. You know. But I'm always evaluating the information that I'm receiving. You keep it reasonable. Don't leave your common sense at the door. The too many people now are swayed by what's popular, what people like, etc. You'll if you listen to people like Ross Coulthard, you'll find that he always tells you when he's speculating usually yeah. he's loath to even do it he will tell you what's possible what something may mean and and that implies that he's not certain it doesn't mean that he's saying it's false or not true it means i don't have enough facts yet and the whole time that i was a detective i had tons of people telling me stuff I was always a small town. I'm always hearing about who's doing what to who and who might be involved in a criminal enterprise. I have this whole big gray basket that I carried around with me of things that might be true. And they're interesting. Maybe they'll go somewhere and maybe they won't. But you got to keep 
keep yourself grounded and keep being reasonable. We, we're not going to solve this hysterically. Yeah. That's, that's what I would advise. In the new show, Reacher, yeah, there's a, a line where he says, speculation kills investigations. And yes. I love that because I thought, well, that's true. Actually, if you speculate, you go down the wrong freaking path. You're not following where the evidence is going. It's beautiful. Um, Michael, do you have any final questions for our guest today? I'd love to hear your reading recommendations. You've already mentioned a few, but what are the books that you would tell everybody that you think that they need to read about this topic? Wow. Uh, Give me three, if you can. Well, there was the one missing times was one. And can you, can you give me about, can you give me about two seconds here? I'll get the, yeah, of course. You see the uh, alien picture there in the background? Is, the, is, uh, is that an statue. alien? It looks like an alien, like a reptilian or some sort. Big yeah, black eyes. The... Yeah. For those who can't see the podcast, he's the, the backdrop in James' uh, office. He's got a, a couple of statues on the desk, but he's got uh, a picture on the right side of a, what looks like a lizard. There's a great story that goes with those alien pictures. Anyway, here's the book. This is what got me started into UFOs. Clear Intent is the name of the book. Yes, by Lawrence Fawcett and Barry J. Greenwood, subtitled The Government Cover-Up of the UFO Experience. What does the government know about UFOs and why won't it tell us? Forward by Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Nice. nice. And the beauty of this book, you can see, I've got three copies of this book. This is my original one, is... And you can see that it's all dog-eared and tagged. <laughs> the way it should be. this book is yeah. based upon the government's own documents. That's why I love this book. It's not speculation. It's their stuff quoted back at them. It's the actual so, evidence itself. I love it. Wonderful. Yes. So I, I consider this to be like a, a fundamental text if you want to get into the field of UFOs. It was published under a different title also. It's the same book. I haven't got that handy, but it does have, I don't know why they released it in another title, but they did. That's one book I told you about the missing times. Wow. What would be the third one? It would be uh, Roswell Legacy by Jesse Marcel Jr. Roswell Legacy. Yes. What about that book was so compelling to you? Because it's such an honest story. It's about how Jesse Marcel was the base intelligence officer at Roswell who was sent to Mac Brazel's farm. Who he had to retrieve the material. He came back and yes. showed it to his son and everything. Yeah. Yes. And this is the story of how, and then they used him as a fall guy. Mm -hmm. When they took everything down to Texas, they took some old pieces of a weather balloon and they made Jesse Marcel pose with it. There's a famous photograph and he knew, but he was ordered not to say a word. And this is the story about how keeping that secret nearly wrecked his life. Mm. I bet. I bet this is, that's the thing that people don't understand is, is the effect that this has on people's lives. It's not just a one-off. This is every day these people have to experience something or get talked about or it wrecks lives. Let's just put it this way. Keeping secrets does that. Um, secret keepers, especially ruin lives or if they start then, leaking. Them, right? Books by Donald, Don, uh, Donald Schmidt and Tom Carey. I'm, nice. I'm, I'm a big Roswell. You know, as you may have gathered, Roswell is a very important story to me. I, I once, before he died, I sat in a closed room with Glenn Dennis, who was the young mortician who got the phone call where they asked him, how many mm. child-sized coffins do you have in stock? Yeah. And what a great story. And when I left that room, whatever doubts I may have had about Roswell, they were gone. Awesome. James what do you think of Philip Corso's? Well, sorry, one last question. What do you think of Philip Corso's book on Roswell? Do you recommend that? That's a tough one. I it's I recommend that you read it. I also recommend that you be careful. 
it all there. One of the things I'll just give you a fine a final thought here. One of the things in ufology that you've got to accept is the trickster factor. Right. And and you'll see it over and over again. You think that you've got the whole story, the big the big revelation, the key witness who's going to tell you everything. And you have the utmost respect for it. And you go running down, I've got it, I've got it. Only to find out that there's some aspect of it that just won't play right. Awesome. And that's, that's excellent advice. Thank you. Yeah. And James, where, where can the audience uh, find more about your work? Where can we find you and reach out to you? JamesClarksonUFO.com or UFO Detective at hushmail.com h-u-s-h-m-a-i-l.com there's a good story that goes with why i have hushmail but that's awesome don't have time for it well james let's have you back again uh soon let's aim for maybe about march but i would love to have like just an episode specifically on investigating trip uh, uh, i said trips tips and tricks together it forms trips um it would be great to have that. A lot of people would like to have that sort of knowledge from you. And it's important that, you know, people like yourself share that to, to teach the younger generation what to do, which is awesome. James, seriously, thank you so much for joining us today, Thanks my friend. Time, James. It's awesome to talk to you thank and get you. to know you. Uh, I have your phone number. Uh, you have mine. So keep it yes. handy and uh, let's keep in touch. Thank you.